Okay, well, well, welcome to the second session. Um, I'm Helen Margitz um, from the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, and I'm chairing this session. Um, I've been asked to say two things. Um, that the Wi-Fi, I don't know if everybody's noticed, that there is a Wi-Fi password on the schedule for the day, which is Bow Street. And that there's a hashtag here, LSE um, SOCSEC. Um, and apparently some people are twittering, but they're not using the hashtag. I've been asked to say it like that. <laughs> okay. Um, so now in this session, um, we're going to kind of place social security in context by looking at some other, looking at online delivery and some other policy areas. Um, so it's great that we've got Nick Chapman from um, NHS Direct, David Dis uh, Dinsdale, um, who used to be the director of Business Link, and Patrick Dunleavy from the London School of Economics, who's going to talk about um, the international context and make some international comparisons um, for UK social security. So everybody's going to speak for 10, ten minutes, minutes, and that gives us half an hour for discussion. Excellent. Can you give me the one-minute warning? warning I will. Uh, right, yeah. Hopefully this technology will work, and if I push this button... Yes, very good. That's me. Uh, so this is a picture of, uh, as it happens, my local hospital where I live um, and a fairly traditional view of a waiting room. Um, the health service, of course, is dominated by physical locations because, of course, that's the only way that you can receive health care, isn't it? Not. Okay, so this is the problem that we face in the NHS. The population is getting older. Uh, it's also getting more obese, uh, more unhealthy. Uh, and demand for healthcare is rising, uh, and whilst the NHS is fortunate to have flat real resources or a tiny bit of growth, depending on uh, whose view you take, um, the growth in resources is, gonna out, is not going to keep pace with the growth in demand. So uh, there is a very, very strong case, uh, a compelling case, for doing things differently. Um, However, doing things differently faces these four barriers, and these are the four barriers that I meet almost every day that I come into work. The first is uh, the line that I opened up with, which is, of course, healthcare is all about uh, attending. You scratch beneath even the most enlightened clinician, and they will say to you, uh, do you know, whatever it is, I'd much rather see the patient in front of me and be able to talk to them one-to-one, -one, because that's what patients really value. Um, and speaking of somebody who has a GP in Dorset and spends most of his life working in London, I'm not sure I'd agree. Um, financial incentives in the system continue to um, incentivise face-to-face contact because that's how institutions get paid. They don't get paid for uh, providing advice to patients remotely and virtually, uh, and that undermines the adoption of uh, remote and virtual solutions. Um, the third is that actually doing this stuff is quite hard. Uh, and you can't just bolt on uh, a telephone or an internet or a mobile application and say, there you go, just, just put that on the front end of what you've always done. Uh, and top-down uh, pathways redesign that simply say, this is how we've decided uh, in Whitehall or uh, Richmond House or in Quarry House, uh, we've decided that it'll happen everywhere in the NHS doesn't work. Uh, and, and finally, whilst... Uh, patients expect to be able to interact with the health service remotely uh, using the internet and using the telephone. Uh, when they can't, their voice is not heard. So we've done a few things which I'll just quickly rattle through before I get my one-minute warning. 
Um, we did a thing called the National Pandemic Flu Service. Uh, it was the first time that prescription medication had been uh, authorised over the internet and over the telephone without using clinicians. Um, it did so in order that our very, very busy clinicians in the NHS uh, could look after more acutely ill patients during the flu pandemic. So the service assessed just short of 3 million patients. 40% of those assessments were done online. Um, and there were some obvious benefits uh, of not having 2.7 million people wandering around saying, excuse me, dish doctor, but a tissue, do you think I've got flu? Um, we've also developed uh, health and symptom checkers for patients. I'll give you a few stats about these. Essentially, this enables you to walk yourself through a series of logical questions that lead you to some uh, helpful advice, either to phone an ambulance quickly uh, or to uh, take sensible self-care measures. Uh, and I'll, just in terms of, uh, of numbers, uh, you can see that last year, for the first time actually, uh, more people used NHS Direct's uh, online services to get advice uh, than uh, actually phoned us. And it has a big impact. Uh, first of all, patients like it, so we consistently get 90% satisfaction scores. We've just introduced another way of scoring satisfaction called the Net Promoter Score, which is quite interesting, but I haven't got time to talk about. Um, and we've saved uh, last year, uh, and these are figures that we've agreed with our commissioners, so the people in the NHS who actually buy our services, so this isn't just self-promotion, uh, 1.1 million uh, A&E and 999 uh, visits and 1.6 million uh, GP appointments and contacts. So these are, these are quite big numbers. Um, the latest thing that we've done, and unfortunately, uh, I'm talking to you now in June, on the, on the 1st of June, uh, we launched the health and symptom checkers, but through mobile, through mobile apps. Um, and we've had 240,000 downloads of that since the 1st of June, and it's been used 850,000 times. So it's the same content, but delivered uh, through an app rather than through a website. We set out two years ago uh, to become what we call the web-first organisation. I'm not talking about the whole of the NHS. I'm talking about NHS Direct, which is a relatively small part of the NHS, actually. Um, and essentially what that meant was, whilst, of course, we will still be available for our patients on the telephone, and that's what we are mostly known for, Actually, if people go looking for us on the web, they'll find us and they'll find something useful. Uh, and we set that out throughout the whole organisation because, interestingly, the barriers that exist in the rest of the NHS to the adoption of remote and virtual technology exist in my organisation when I try to move people from the telephone to the web. And the people who, the vast majority of people within NHS Direct, spend their time talking to patients on the telephone. And they somehow regard somebody who comes through to them having been onto the web first as not having quite done it right. It's odd. So, uh, barriers to overcome internally. Um, we really do believe the future is multi-channel. Uh, you only have to I try and bait my colleagues. Um, I think I'm allowed to have worked in NHS for 32 years. Um, that we're like a 1950s bank. Uh, you know, come to the branch and we'll do business with you. Uh, don't bother going to the branch of the same organisation in the next town because they won't cash your cheque uh, and we certainly won't send you foreign currency through the post or do online banking. 
Um, so we believe that the future is multi-channel, but we've got to keep these really important elements that I've listed here. I'm presuming everybody will have access to these, uh, this presentation afterwards. Um, keeping the human element, making sure that patients trust what we do because it is clinically supportive. We spent a lot of time gathering information. Uh, we've got a, just short of 20,000 uh, members of NHS Direct. Uh, and these are people who are signing up to want to be associated with NHS Direct. They don't get any special particular extra service from our nurses, but simply uh, enabling, particularly in this example, uh, to help us design future services. So we spend a lot of time testing uh, how our services will look and feel from, from our customers' point of view, from our patients' point of view. Um, we have, an, we have a, a past history of there being what I'd describe as battle of the websites. So it's all about who, whose website your, your um, whether you had the biggest website in the world. That's what mattered. And we said, Don't, that's not true. We want patients to use our content irrespective of whose website it is. So I'll put it on the Women's Institute website, I'll put it on the Met Office website, I'll put our content onto GP Surgery's website, I'll put it onto anybody's website, um, and it, it can appear anywhere you like, so it can fit with your local uh, branding, so that it really is yours, uh, or it can fit with uh, our, our centralised branding, because what I want to do is to put our content where patients go, and not try and get patients to go where I want them to go, if you see what I mean. So that syndication strategy underlies what we're doing to spread the use because in the NHS, and it may be in other parts of the public sector as well, if it wasn't invented here, then it's no use. Um, and, and this is a, a method of overcoming that. And finally, I haven't had my one-minute warning yet, so I'm... No, that's because you haven't got to the one minute. That's fantastic. <laughs> I'm well, I'm going to run out of things to say because I rattled along so quickly. Um, that gives more time for others and for questions. So, um, a bit of self-promotion. We've actually done some quite good stuff, um, and I think we are beginning to uh, demonstrate the value of remote and virtual healthcare uh, to overcome some of the barriers that I've tried to quickly talk about and we can touch on later in discussion, um, and actually help the NHS and, and, and maybe as an example to other public services to overcome the growth in demand um, uh, that is disproportionate to the resources available. Uh, and, and that's a really valuable challenge for us um, because without it, of course, uh, the NHS will have to find even, uh, you know, will have to find other solutions which, which one suspect will include rationing uh, of healthcare. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, David Dinsdale. Thanks. Shuffle. Yep. Uh, great. So, uh, my name is David Dinsdale. I was uh, formerly the director of business, it's the business version of DirectGov, effectively. Um, and I was director there for about five years uh, prior to leaving in, in January. What I've been asked to cover is 
something more around the futures. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Business Link, but it's more around the technology futures. So one of the, the processes um, that I was responsible for and led was the comprehensive spending review and the settlements within the comprehensive spending review um, for government starting in April this year and lasting for the next few years. A key part of that was understanding, okay, well, where are digital services going to be and where does businesslink.gov.uk and other government digital services for business play? You know, what is the space that we're going to be operating in? Um, and it's that that I would like to share with you, uh, or some of that that I would like to share with you today. Good. There we go. So where are we now? Um, just a very quick summary of kind of where we are, because over the last... Um, what, three years, um, there's been a very important sort of behind-the-scenes transformation going on at both DirectGov and BusinessLink. Um, so following a review by a chap called Sir David Barney, um, who used to be the head of HM Revenue and Customs, a very uh, close advisor to Gordon Brown, um, a decision was taken to centralise all of government's online services in two areas. So instead of having lots of websites, we'd have two, one for citizens, one for business. Um, business Link uh, being the one for business, Direct being the one for citizens. Um, and I think that presents a really interesting opportunity moving forwards. Because one of the things that we're starting to see is a lot of technology convergence. Um, and for the first time in a, in a government context, excluding health, uh, which obviously has NHS Direct and NHS Choices, um, you're starting to see a single place where people can go, and even if they don't like the information that they get, they're going to get it there. Um, so by our target for the two services was to converge 95% of the websites over a three-year period, and we did 98% each, roughly. Um, so we, we now in the, are now in a situation where government has two fantastic assets um, that are driving customer traffic and has crucially, and this was part of the rationale for it, the ability to cross and upsell services. Um, so looking at the future, um, what I've done is bring a, a, a few graphs out of uh, uh, several reports by a company called Business Intelligence. Um, they'll be impossible to see at the back of the room, but I'll talk you through them. Uh, so these are looking at the future of uh, services, where the internet is going to be, where access devices are going to be, um, through to the 2018 period. Um, so that's right at the heart of when universal credit is due to be rolled out, so finalising rollout in, in 2017. So looking at the, the slide here, um, what we've got is shipments of devices. So these are the devices that people are going to be using to access the internet. Um, the big blue one at the bottom, which is growing the most, uh, is smartphones. So it gives you an idea of where smartphones are going, and this is a, a global prediction that I'll dig into the UK in a moment. Um, so currently shipping about 250 uh, million units. Uh, by 2018, we'll be shipping uh, somewhere approaching a billion units. Uh, the, these slides will be available, so don't worry about the figures. You, you'll be able to get them off the, off the slides. Um, so a massive increase in, in the usage of smartphones. Um, notebook PCs is the orange, growing a little but not hugely. Um, desktop PCs, netbooks, and then tablet PCs at the top. And tablet PCs... Um, I was a little surprised by that. I thought that might be a bit higher, but that's, those are the forecasts that they've got. So clearly a huge um, move towards smartphones. Uh, there's a Wired magazine outside in reception here. I was really interested to note a statistic from that. Um, currently in the UK, 
for every baby that's born, um, three smartphones are registered. Um, so that's, that's smart, smart babies. Um, uh, looking then, um, again, at, okay, what are all these people going to be doing it uh, with all these devices that they've got? Um, so this is a forecast of cloud services revenue um, by market. Um, and you can see that the bottom and the most rapidly growing segment of that graph is mobile applications. Um, growing from a revenue projection currently of 3.1 billion uh, to 32.5 billion. Um, the next one above that is online gaming, then voice over IP, paid music content, and then you start in to get into the other things, social networking, um, storage backup and email, which are virtually negligible. So people are going to be moving in that time frame massively um, because of the other things that they're doing which are not government into a much more sort of mobile-enabled uh, lifestyle and will become cons consuming a lot more services in that way. Um, then starting to split it down and say, well, where is the UK in this? You know, are, we, are we like the smart people or are we not the smart people? Um, based on the forecasts, here you have US... Um, at the bottom is the purple one, and interestingly, orange um, is the UK. So the forecasts are that in the UK, people will be consuming more cloud mobile application services than in the rest of Western Europe combined. So a very connected society is going to exist out there. Um, looking at uh, cloud services, so... The, the previous graph was mobile services, then looking at cloud services. Um, again, the UK um, is the second uh, largest market. So the US is the bottom, the UK is the second. Uh, Western Europe, slightly larger than the UK, but the UK is right up there um, in terms of, of the amount of services that it's being combined. Uh, 46 billion, uh, so that's what about £800 per person per year, roughly on average, is going to be consumed by some kind of cloud services on all of those devices, most of which are going to be mobile. So it's, it's a massive change, a massive change in use, a massive change in the, in the landscape. Um, people's primary access device for services is probably going to be on the mobiles. You start to see new technologies like laptops come in, so you take your mobile phone, you plug it into a... Um, what is effectively a dumb computer, and you open it up, and it's all of a sudden it's a laptop. Uh, people are talking a lot about you know access to broadband and the rollout of broadband. Um, I have an iPhone; it's a Wi-Fi hotspot now. Whenever I want it to be, um, I can share that with other people or not. Um, so all of a sudden, physical connection to broadband services isn't that much of a problem. Uh, my iPhone; I have a, a five gigabyte tariff. I've never hit it. I have an iPad that has a fifteen gigabyte tariff. Um, for £15 a month. Um, I've never hit that either. Um, so this, the, the kind of the connectivity, the devices, the way that people are using the web is fundamentally going to change. Um, currently, what tends to happen, and this is what we were doing when I was in Business Link, you design an online service, you sort of go for the website and you tag on this kind of mobile thing um, as sort of a bit of an afterthought. Um, the service design of those kind of services is going to need to radically change. Um, so looking at some of the conclusions, we are going to be among the smartest of the smart people. Um, there is an issue around people who are not connected and how do you make inclusion um, a, a reality here. 
um, the work by Marceline Fox, etc., is absolutely crucial to this. But th there is a decision that's going to need to be taken is, do you design services for the most unconnected, or do you design a range of services, some of which are for the most unconnected, and some of which pick up the vast majority of people who are doing all this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis on the channels that they prefer? Um, the devices are going to be out there. Um, you know, by 2018, it'll be interesting to see if you can actually buy a mobile phone. Um, you know, interesting thought. Um, and th this is also crucial. The user experiences are becoming shorter, faster, and less verbose. Um, this was a real challenge that I had within Business Link, um, and I was never able to successfully overcome it. So what happens is you go onto Business Link, you want to go to company's house and file your corporate tax return. So it says, you know, go to company's house. So you click on the go to company's house button. It says, you've clicked on the company's house button. We just want to make sure that you really want to go to company's house. So you're not just randomly clicking things on the page to see what happens. So if you really, really want to go to company's house, please click here again. And so then you click here again, and then it takes you through to another page, which is the company's house sort of access page. Um, those kind of things have got to go. Got to go. They were entirely appropriate uh, when services like Business Link were designed, which is back in 2004. Um, so currently, the lifespan of these digital services is about 10 years. So it takes a couple of years to commission them. They run for five or six years, and then it takes a couple of years to sort of break them down and move on to the next version. And Business Link and Direct have a right at that sort of end-of-life barrier. Um, new services like uh, Alpha.gov are going to come out um, that, that are in, in progress. The, the new digital directs will drive that forward. And Business Link had some fairly radical plans within its, uh, within its business case that was approved in the Comprehensive Spending Review. Um, so, so it is absolutely crucial when those services are being designed that you're designing for 10 years hence um, because that is when uh, people are really going to be sort of bashing through in terms of using these services. So what, what should uh, government do, I guess, bringing it back to um, social security? Um, so here are a couple of thoughts that I, I thought to put out there. The number one is identity management. Um, that is really tough in government. Um, there are a lot of companies picking a lot of money out of government because government keeps checking your identity. When you go to a local authority, they'll check it. When the central government will check in DWP. Um, it, that really needs to be brought together. Um, and unfortunately, governments, both on, of all, uh, of all uh, political denominations, have painted themselves into a corner with this identity card. So identity management, identity cards sound very similar. Um, every sort of political party doesn't want to do identity cards, but you can't make online services a success unless you do identity management. Um, services have got to be delivered in a way that people are consuming them. And I think that is absolutely crucial. Um, at the heart of this, one of the things that I think government should do, which will get over one of the biggest barriers that, that exists that we came across, is build an app platform which is different from an app store. Um, so the app store is like on the iPhone, you go on, you buy Angry Birds, off you go, it's all great. Um, an app platform is kind of more like a more sophisticated version of Business Link and DirectGov, where individual departments and agencies could bolt their, bolt their apps directly into the service. Um, the biggest barrier that we found uh, in getting the, um, all of the information and services onto Business Link was the technology contracts that existed um, within the organizations and the departments that we were working with. They were very, very tough. 
Um, I was part of an outsourcing company called Serco, and so you know we were dealing with IBM and Accenture and all these guys, and they were going, you are not going to get your greedy little mitts on our revenue. Um, and so that needs to be dealt with. Um, there are some big contracts out there that last for a long time. HMRC are tied until 2017. So the technology platform needs to anticipate that there will be multiple providers that are already there, and potentially new providers, and I know there are some people in the audience who are keen on that, and there is the discussion around APIs, who are going to need to bolt stuff in. Um, and, and finally, um, it's build concise services that help people overcome problems rather than navigate them. Um, so Lord Michael talked earlier on about you know, a lot of government services are we've created a mess and now we're going to launch a service that will help you navigate that mess. Um, the services need to focus back on what are people trying to achieve, what are the problems that people have, and how do we help them overcome that problem. Um, and that was it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, well. How nice it is to see pictures of mobile phones and hear talks of apps and genuine user experiences and statistics. It's great. But now I'm going to go slightly back in time to back to social security systems and uh, this time focus just a little bit on, on, on the uh, experience with social security systems elsewhere. And as I mentioned in my opening remarks, it's, 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 it's been a very long lag in social security systems getting online, but we do have um, three countries where I think we can, we can point to some useful experience, which is the USA, uh, and then Canada, and Australia. So let me just uh, kick off with the, the US, and um, here's a list of the services that are available from the Social Security Administration, which is the very enormous and very uh, technically capable uh, U.S. Social Security Agency, and uh, in particular, you'll see that you can apply for a Social Security or retire a retirement or spouse's benefits online, and that's been the, the really uh, big thing. The SSA has actually spent years and years and years since uh, trying in, a, in the late 1990s with a, an online notification of your entitlement, which was proved very controversial. Uh, they then had to withdraw it, and you could apply for your, your entitlement online, but they had to post it to you because of ID threats. They then spent a, a huge amount of time re redoing their back office systems, and the result of that is that uh, it, they have now started uh, retirement claims online, and when they brought in retirement claims online, they had one really strong motivation, which was that... Uh, Normally, people were having a 45-minute interview to get their retirement claim started. And they had run this forward for the next uh, 15 years and discovered that they just didn't have the staff to keep, to keep going at that rate. They had to get rid of uh, a huge amount of the load just to cope with the bulge of uh, retirees that they're, that they're going to have to cope with. And you can see that they've got up to 37% uh, of people online in 2010, and they have this plan to get it to 50% by 2012, which is really quite dramatic uh, progress, and it, it is down to a huge amount of back office work, uh, integrating employment records and, uh, and, and, and uh, pulling it together and being able to very precisely uh, link it to people. 
Of course, they do have a social security number, which everybody uses in the USA. And indeed, governments, other government departments use the social security number as a sort of national ID number. And they've also got uh, less of the way, but, you know, with over a quarter of, of, of claims for disability benefits also being registered online. So this is a very large, huge-scale operation. The, uh, there are 300 million people in America. Um, the Social Security Administration is actually running computer services at a scale that, apart from the IRS, I don't think anybody else is running uh, at that scale. I don't know if, if even if you go to China, you'll find that everything there is being run on a provincial level, so it's been split up into 28 provinces of about the same size as the UK. So this is actually a huge accomplishment by uh, the American SSA and, and reflects a, a, a lot of very intelligent, very hard work uh, that they've done over a long period of time. Moving on to uh, Canada. Canada has... Uh, a federal government and provincial governments, and it's had a long-run problem with uh, maintaining support for the Federation. And one of their big things has been to make access to federal government services really much, much better than access to provincial government services. And the, 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 the agency that drives that is called Service Canada. And uh, they have two programs that, again, are old-age uh, <coughs> programs. One is the... Uh, regular uh, Canada pension plan, which you, you pay into. And the other one is old age security, which is more of a, an income top-up kind of plan. And uh, <clears throat> the first thing that they managed to do was to get uh, a system for electronically validating your access. And uh, that's really a key thing, as David mentioned, you know, being able to know who you're talking to uh, is, is very important. Canada doesn't have an idea. ID card or really any uh, single number, but uh, they have managed to get this electronic uh, validation process working. And so that's allowed them to begin to start doing all these old age uh, systems um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an effective way. And they also have made a lot of progress with people pursuing uh, employment insurance claims online. So um, <clears throat> The, uh, the way you do this is, 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 is it's a digital by default kind of process. Service Canada does have a, uh, a phone system. It does have offices. But actually in Canada, it's, it's quite hard to be close to a federal office because it's a, a huge country and uh, many areas are very sparsely populated. So actually they've got to 98% of applications for employment insurance online are being done uh, over the web. And, um, sorry, for employment insurance, but only uh, 40% of the employer bit where the employer has to supply a record of employment. So that's, that's uh, a lot less well-developed than the actual claim. Now, the reason why you have 98% is that uh, people want to get money when they're unemployed. It's a pretty strong incentive, and we've had evidence from the UK that there's been a fast take-up of job seekers' allowance online, in fact, so fast that actually uh, maybe DWP has been able to cope with the, with the, 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 the levels. Uh, so I think that um, you know, the Canada experience does show that if you really work on uh, developing a few really big services online, you can get very rapid uh, progress. 
Moving on to uh, Australia, the organisation that runs Social Security in Australia is called Centrelink, which is, uh, is kind of high street based uh, or shopping centre based. So it's, it's, it's got a good uh, local office network and a very big phone uh, network and big websites, uh, labour market websites. It's recently just taken over running the Medicaid, uh, a medical insurance program there, and is also beginning to take responsibility for chasing divorced fathers around the country and trying to get them to pay their way. <coughs> so it's, it's, it's a, a very central agency now in the whole Australian federal government thing, and there is really a strong joining up, which has only just begun. But there are two programs that uh, are currently n not being handled in the conventional uh, office network and, and firm way, but are more online. The first one is uh, a job seeker type program, especially for youth job seekers, which has uh, done well. And the second one is a family assistance uh, program. And um, that's uh, a particular success because 80% of first time mothers are claiming online and they've managed to get rid of a 30 minute phone call that they previously had and replace it with this online thing. So I think that gives you a quick sense of where different countries are in terms of their uh, development. There, there are other examples that we might point to. There's a very interesting program in Sweden, which we haven't got on the slides, but uh, it's a program for uh, parents who have to take time off work in order to um, look after their children when their children are ill. And basically, the parent phones up the employer and says they can't come in. The employer notifies the online that the, the person is taking time off to look after their kids. The parent applies online uh, for uh, a replacement, so they're, they're docked their salary by the empl employer, but they get a benefit that replaces it from the government. And because you have a kind of uh, verification at the employee and the employer end, that program has proved very successful. It's, it's been taken off very quickly. Almost all the claims are made online, and there's very little fraud, and it's a very secure system. Um, and it also means that you have identity checks built into the system. But in addition, the Swedes also use a bank card uh, electronic ID number rather than a national identity card ID number. So there's a lot of different uh, areas where progress is being made. Um, ooh, I'll skip over that last one. Uh, and I hope that gives you a bit of a flavour of where we might be going. Okay, questions from the audience. Um, okay, over there. Do you want to say who you are? Hi, I'm Veronica and I'm a user experience and interaction designer. Um, questions for Nick. Um, regarding the symptom checkers. I think, in theory, it's a nice idea that you can check your symptoms online or on a phone or whatever, but you have to get the balance right between being too cautious and not being cautious enough. So whether you reject people and say they're fine or whether you refer everyone to a doctor. And my, I know there's 90% satisfaction that you've had, but my personal experiences with that... Um, when I used it for like a swine flu check mm -hmm. was that no matter what I put pretty much said visit your doctor <laughs> so 
you can scare people off as well and and you can encourage people to contact their doctor more than they actually would have um slowing down the service as well so looking at things even technology wise like even looking at webcam and how you can use that even um because sometimes you do want a personal interaction and sometimes the doctor doesn't need to see your symptoms as well so um yeah the first first point is what evidence do we have that we are sorry um, that we are uh, saving more demand than we are creating because uh, clearly you can create demand um, but we we survey seven hundred and fifty of our patients randomly every month, and we ask them um, after the event uh, what it was that they would have done had they not contacted NHS Direct, what was in their mind, what was their plan. Um, We also established what advice we gave, and we also established whether they followed it. Um, And we find that over 90% of patients follow it, it, and that when you balance off the additional demand that you create by being more cautious uh, against that demand that you save, we're saving very much more demand than than we're creating, hence the numbers that, that I showed you, which are netted off. Um, the second point was about uh, being cautious. Um, well, uh, the reality is that uh, as a service, we have ver- a very, very, very low incident rate um, that you can measure in uh, on the fingers of, of two hands per million contacts. Uh, having spent 30 years running face-to-face services, I wish face-to-face services had the same degree of reliability. Um, and I'm afraid that what you are uh, ignoring in the comments about um, isn't it better to see your doctor effectively uh, is the fact that your doctor hasn't got time to see you um, unless you want to go into a private pay-as-you-go kind of health service um, because we won't be able to keep up with the demand. So, you know, I think it's... Um, if there's a note of, of, of urgency in my voice to push back against those people that say, well, you know, when I used it, it wasn't quite this or that, is, yeah, okay, but think carefully about the alternatives. Okay, can we collect up two or three questions? There's one at the back over there. Hi, I'm Liz Cole from Consumer Focus. It's sort of picking up on the NHS Direct question because... A lot of the needs that people will have in the future will be about personal advice, behaviour change. A lot of these things are sort of social and behavioural things which lead to health issues. I'm just wondering how that translates to online services as opposed to the more, you know, diagnosing something like swine flu. Any other questions so that we can stack a couple up? One over here. Hi, I'm Raj from DWP. Um, Just a question on the international perspective. You've, the countries that you've chosen have obviously picked particular services to, to move onto the online environment or to drive customers to that online environment. They don't seem to be particularly transformational in terms of the overall customer experience of engaging with social security or um, government services generally. And it was, I suppose, an observation, is, it any particular, is, is that any different from what we're trying to do here or have been doing, which is pick certain services rather than look at some sort of structural, transformational change in terms of how people engage with services. Thanks. Last one here. 
actually one for you. Go on each. <laughs> Hi, Tony Curry again. Um, just going on to a point which was made first thing about the, the, the nub of digital inclusion, which is, you know, a lot of the people who are drawing down these services that there's a view that a lot of them are digitally excluded at the moment, they either haven't got access or can't afford access. I'd be interested to hear from Patrick what, what the international experience is and you know, how they've overcome this issue of the people who actually need the services are potentially excluded. So you know, ha have they overcome that? Is it, is it overcomable? Okay. Two for Patrick, one for Nick. Which order do you want us to go in? Uh, well, if you uh, you go first. Okay, quick, quick then. Um, the applicate the potential application of remote and virtual uh, technology, digital technology, to uh, a much broader range of healthcare applications, including supporting patients uh, who find moving outside of their house actually quite difficult, um, and which are substantially more uh, cost-effective than employing somebody in a car to drive around. Uh, and try and see six or eight or ten people a day. Um, you can support uh, a very large number of patients. Uh, for example, uh, patients with long-term conditions who need regular monitoring. Uh, you can put a, a small, cheap box of tricks into someone's house using a telephone line uh, with them being able to answer questions every day about their, their daily habits and how they feel, uh, supported uh, and triaged by telephones to those patients that actually things are, seem to be tailing off in the wrong direction uh, and they need support, or whether actually a 10-minute chat on the phone with someone uh, would, would, would be helpful. Um, you know, we will have uh, millions of patients in this country with multiple long-term conditions, uh, and this sort of cheap, accessible, uh, and almost everybody has a telephone line, uh, certainly where they're home-based, so it's, I think it also answers some of the issues about digital inclusion that we design services to be delivered that actually help people in their day-to-day, -day, every, everyday situations. And there's lots of applicability of it. Okay. I'll stand up because I can't see half the audience, if that's all right. Um, my two questions were uh, about uh, the countries that uh, I've mentioned. Are they particularly transformational? Well, they're not. But uh, in a way, I think that's a good thing. You know, whenever I hear British government people say something's going to be transformational, my heart tends to sink to my boots because it generally means that it's not even any damn good at all, let alone transformational. So I think the, you know, if you talk to business people, they don't do the kind of long-term big bang transformational planning that British government has tended to do over the years and that DWP has been particularly, you know, in the grip of. They tend to do serial small innovations, innovations where uh, you can change and where you can adapt and you can respond and where you can grow knowledge and you can build out from that knowledge. All the kind of things that David was mentioning in his talk were in an era of, you know, we don't really know, despite the numbers that he's given us, we don't really know where, where we're going to be in 2018, but we do know it's going to be a time of, you know, hugely, hugely rapid change. And hugely rapid change can be very disconcerting. So, for example, I was really struck by all the pre presenters this morning. Not one of them seemed to be envisaging anything other than a government service that is based around text. And if you go on any government website at the moment, it's text after text after text. Uh, and we spend an enormous amount of money 
not only in this country but all around the world, taking things that are already digital and converting them into text. Why do we do that? I mean, if we can convict somebody in a law court for a crime on the basis of CCTV, how come we can't interview someone on a social security matter by Skype? I don't know if you've thought about Skype, but it's got a huge implications in the health area. There's a problem when you get cut off. That's why we're not using it right. at the moment. But, you know, it's going to be... So, you know, there's huge potential to just use audio and video, and that can be really compelling evidence. You could use that directly. And some of the other countries that I've mentioned are beginning to think about this. For example, let me give you an example. Um, in Australia, there are actually 1,400 different Australian Aborigine languages. Um, providing interpreter services is phenomenally difficult. But if you, you know, if you then say to them, well, have you thought about using Skype over distances which in Western Australia are hundreds of miles, you know, people haven't even begun to think about it. So there's huge potential there. The technology will be transformational. And what we need to do is to just sort of be in touch with the technology uh, rather than having very big government plans. That, that would be the kind of suggestion. I don't know if David would like to comment on that at all. Yeah, the, um, one of the things uh, we did um, at Business Link in partnership with Direct Gov NHS Choices and also some of the regional development agencies was uh, we ran a, a sort of a research program called DogGov Labs. Um, and they, you've got to be careful doing this in government because uh, sometimes if these things get out into the press, you just get slaughtered uh, in the press for wasting money. Um, and then the next article is about the government not looking to the future and, and researching the future. So you, you're always going to get hit one way or the other. Um, the, within that, though, some of the research programs included things like um, live feeds um, from A&E, uh, departments. So, if you were about to go to an A&E, quite often you, it's not that desperate. Um, you can have a choice, um, and it, if there are a few hospitals in your locality, and some of them have, um, you know, heavy waiting lists, and some of them have light waiting lists, that can make that a um, a much better experience. You know, that's a uh, visiting A&E. I've done it on a number of occasions. Is not top of my list of fun places to go. Um, other things like. Um, the use of avatars, the ability to interact over the phone, um, were very popular in the, in the research. Um, there's absolutely no doubt about that. There are you know, some qualifiers there that in terms of uh, it is much more effective, but, you know, based on the research that we've, we did, to um, if you're going to have a face-to-face -face and then follow up by a video, that tends to be more effective than video from the first if that makes sense, which is quite interesting because it, it then leads to perhaps different thoughts about the service design. So maybe people do want to come in um, uh, for an initial consultation on whatever it is they're consulting on and then be they're happy to be followed up by, by phone or um, by, by other means. Um, so there's, there's a lot out there. Um, I think summarizing, you know, we, we spent 600,000 in total on that research program I think the, the summer, summer, summary that will come out of all of that is um, there's a lot of options that have yet to be explored, um, but they, they do take um, a bit of courage, and, and in some ways there's a question as to whether government is the right organisation 
um, to do some of that advanced work. Um, yeah. And by advanced, I mean, I don't mean sort of super technical, I mean sort of long-term future. Patrick, were you going to come back on the digital exclusion point? Yeah, um, digital exclusion, I think, is, is morphing and changing, so that... Um, in the old days, you know, uh, there were uh, there were problems of people who didn't have any access to digital services at all. I think one of the things that you, you get from, uh, let's say, the Oxford Internet Institute's very excellent surveys is that uh, you you have a lot more people with with full broadband access, but then amongst the not not access people, there are people who could you know who could have friends or relations, sons or daughters or people like that who can help them through. It's changing very rapidly in, you know, 77% of uh, people over 65 uh, are now seem to be online, which seems to be a really high number. Um, and uh, it, it's coming down to particular sort of skills and problems, you know. So if you're very elderly and you've got eyesight problems, you've got cataracts or you've got something, you know, vision problems, uh, at the moment, you know, you've got no chance of reading a government website, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you can read an e-book because you can adjust the font size. Well, why can't you do that on the website? Do you see what I mean? There's lots of different things that create exclusion, and most of them are a product of bureaucratic cultures. Similarly, um, David's figures showed you that online gaming is huge already and is going to grow really, really huge in the future. And online gaming is, 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 is very much practiced by people, for example, with quite poor education but excellent motor skills. Uh, you know, there are no government services that I know of that are set up in an online gaming kind of fashion. Why not? Because we've got one of the best online gaming industries in the world. Um, and if you can fight your way through very complex, you know, layered stories, that's just the kind of skill you need to get through a government website. Uh, so I think there's a lot of potential for, for, for combating that. And I think there is a danger, though, that... Uh, you know, people will do things like, for example, there was an attempt to get rid of the post office card account, and there was another attempt to get rid of Oyster card as a, a distinct thing. And that we, we have to guard against a new kind of digital exclusion, which is based on finances. So if you've got a bank account, you've got everything. You can travel around London. If you haven't got a bank account, suddenly, you know, you're queuing at the ticket office. So though, I think we have to be always alert to exclusion, but recognise that it's taking lots of new forms and it will constantly morph all the time. And it will constantly morph because the wealthiest and the most capable sections of society will be right at the forefront and the youngest of where David was, was talking about. And that always reintroduces residualization in new forms for different groups of people. I think Nick had a quick point. There's two questions over there and then we'll go. Very, very quick point on the point about uh, inclusion or exclusion, depending on which uh, half full or empty you're looking at. Um, let us not imagine that the world of face-to-face -face delivery um, is somehow a, a baseline um, of uh, good inclusion that, from which we should work uh, and that digital is somehow the problem. Uh, it's clearly not. So the problem that we have to work on is inclusion and access, in my case, to healthcare. Uh, and that's what matters, and that's what we should concentrate on, and not a subset. Okay, there's two questions over there, and one there, if it's incredibly brief, because we must finish in three or four minutes. 
Uh, Kevin McLean from UK Online Centres. I'm speaking this afternoon about some research on digital exclusion, so I just thought I'd flag that up now. But the point I really wanted to make was, um, lest anybody run away with the idea that digital inclusion, digital exclusion is a, is a showstopper, um, I know an awful, an awful lot about it, and it absolutely isn't. It should not be a reason for not doing the things we're talking about today. We must still go ahead and design really good online services and make sure that that drives back into policy making. And then we can solve the problem of, of digital inclusion. That, what, just because you can't do it for everybody online doesn't mean you shouldn't do it for everybody else. Yeah, and a question here. Uh, Jim Dalton uh, from a company, Design It. Um, it's more two or three comments, probably more than questions. Um, just picking up on the, this, this uh, gaming uh, uh, lead that Patrick has put us on to. Uh, very recently, a, a US digital agency is trouble uh, recruiting people, and they built... Um, their recruitment policy into a, a well-used game in the U.S. A fascinating strategy. Um, picking up a, a point that David talked about uh, earlier in the context of the importance of developing apps that are that are developed as apps rather than uh, offshoots of, of websites. We um, uh, a year and a half ago we would charge about five thousand pounds to design an app um, because it was a gimmick. Uh, we're now having to charge six-figure numbers because it's key to commercial strategy. Um, so just a sort of anecdote, uh, I guess. Um, uh, and building on this sort of multi-channeled uh, approach and the importance of direct contact versus digital contact, um, one of the apps we've recently developed for Danske Bank in Denmark, um, in the first, year, uh, first month of, of use, gained 3,000 new customers uh, purely from the use of an app. Um, but very interestingly, if you look at a lot of the uh, early online banking companies, Egg, a great example, uh, they're now struggling because the uh, main stream banks are now have very good online services, whereas the bespoke online banks don't have face-to-face -face services. Um, and I think Metro Bank have invested a huge amount of money in uh, an actual uh, point of contact, i.e. a traditional high street bank. Okay, thank you. I think we need to go back to the speakers now. Sorry. Do you think we'll be able to make the point this afternoon? It's just that we're running over now. Um, and uh, I'll hand back to all the speakers to respond to those and make one last comment, and then we need to stop. Great. Uh, a very quick one. Uh, as part of the research program, we did some research on games, and we came up with an interesting statistic, so slightly frivolous end to, uh, to my contribution. Um, the games are obviously based around entertainment and reward. Reward is a really important part. And so there's a, a research team uh, that done some EU-funded work on reward and, and uh, the psychology of reward. Um, and the thing that they found is that, in general, the approach to reward is different between men and women. Um, so women prefer, in games, to be forgiven for making their mistakes, and men prefer to be punished. <laughs> so you're going to replicate that one? <laughs> Don't let go. Yeah, I suppose just as a, a final kind of throwaway comment, uh, and I speak really for um, my bit in the NHS, I think it's about disruptive innovation and doing things that work. Uh, and not about waiting for a grand plan developed centrally that will save the universe. And uh, my sort of parting word would be uh, government should really look at everything that, uh, all the information that it has and think to itself, well, 
if, if this information is available digitally, why do we need to do something else with it? I mean, if it's available in a digital form, why can't we use it in the format in which it's available? So I think that may sound a sort of innocent kind of principle, but when you think that uh, images and audio and video are available digitally and are not being used by government, you know, are not being stored or not being embodied into administrative processes anywhere, really, except just at the margins, that's, that's a, a thing with a kind of 20-year lifespan to really work out what the implications of that are. Um, so it's a sort of a new kind of minimal government doctrine, which is don't re-digitise information that's already digital. Okay. Well, sure we'd all like to thank the speakers. That was a really interesting session, and now it's lunch.